Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody. Episode number seven, Push Dose EMS. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Matcha. I am the clinical education QA manager for Milwaukee County. Uh, joining me for today's discussion, an illustrious group, uh, no particular order on my list. I have Dr. Luke Grover, uh, EMS fellow. Welcome, Dr. Grover. Happy to be here. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> Uh, also with us, uh, QA Supervisor, Linda Matrish. Welcome, Linda. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, next on my list, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Posher. Welcome, Dan. Hi there. Uh, Assistant Medical Director for Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Dr. Chin, welcome. Good afternoon. And welcome to everybody out there listening live uh, here on Zoom or those that are going to be listening shortly over on Podbean or iTunes at your convenience. Uh, again, this is episode seven of Push Dose DMS. Today's discussion is going to be focused on uh, MVCs and those involving motorcycles in particular. Uh, but before we get too deep into the discussion, as per usual, we do have some updates from the office and the medical direction team. So first, I'm going to throw it over to Dan Pojar for some updates from the office. Dan, what do you got for us? Thanks, Jeff. Just a couple things today. I'll keep it nice and short. Uh, state license renewals. You have until the end of the month to get that done. So about three weeks here. So if you have not done so, please make sure that you get your state license taken care of. Um, the other thing is a big effort from OEM specifically uh, countywide is creating the, the core team, which is a community-oriented regional EMS. Um, right now, the intent of that, since all of our special event venues are shut down, is to really uh, focus on helping public health departments uh, with COVID testing and potentially vaccination campaign. Um, one other exciting update from that is uh, we are actively working to reclassify some of the positions that we currently have open and vacant to the EMT level. So we'll be able to expand the staffing in that manner. Um, I expect that to be approved by the County board in October. So ideally right around probably Halloween time, we'll be able to start actively recruiting EMTs. Uh, I know Dr. Weston had sent out uh, a note to the system uh, with a, a cognito form link. If you guys wanted to fill that out, if you're interested for the EMT level, otherwise, you can Google search Milwaukee County Careers and find the open paramedic positions there. And uh, I've also asked for those to be posted on our OEM Facebook site. So those are my big updates. Thanks. Perfect. Thanks, Dan. Uh, just a reminder and an update from the DHS office. If you haven't renewed your license yet, you have been getting a series of emails. So if you're continuing to get those emails and you think you're done, you're probably not. So you should go ahead and take a look and just make sure that you're all the way relicensed. Uh, moving on, Dr. Weston, updates from the medical direction team. All right, thanks, Jeff. So just a few quick updates here. Um, one is we're working with a few departments in the county uh, on transitioning from BLS-only services to ALS services. So that's moving forward. I think it's a really excited direction for uh, those departments, those communities, uh, and certainly the citizens that they serve. Number two, I just want to echo what uh, Division Director uh, Dan Pojar said about the core team. So uh, I think this is a really exciting opportunity for uh, our county, our community, um, and uh, for us to have uh, even more impact on the, the COVID pandemic than, than each of your departments are already having. 
um, kind of take it even one step further. So uh, the main thing is uh, we're really looking for uh, more personnel. Uh, this is something that you do in your, uh, you know, <laughs> extra time. Not many of us have that much extra time these days, but hopefully there's some out there. So uh, when you're not doing your normal job, uh, you can work part-time for the core team, uh, make a little extra money and really contribute to your community. So um, uh, keep an eye out for those opportunities. Take a look back at that email um, and uh, think about it. Next, just a few quick COVID updates. Um, so these will probably be outdated relatively soon, but for those who are listening live or listen uh, relatively soon, uh, our numbers are showing promising trends, uh, promising trends with respect to case numbers, uh, case counts, uh, the percent positivity, that is the percent of tests that are coming back positive um, has been lingering right around 5%, which is a lot better than where it's been. Um, and then uh, hospitalizations, we have the lowest number of hospitalized patients in the county since we started tracking this number back in early April. Uh, on, on a less promising note, we're seeing a definite decline in levels of testing. Uh, it's been about five or six weeks now where we see a consistent uh, downtrend in how many people in the county are seeking out testing. So uh, for EMS providers, just like the general public, uh, the, the times when you really want to seek out testing, if you have symptoms of COVID-19, if you've had close contact uh, in the EMS world while not using appropriate PPE with someone who tested positive, uh, or if you've been referred by a healthcare or a public health provider, please, please get tested. Uh, it's simple to get tested. There's a number of routes for, for doing that. You can contact your healthcare providers. You can call 211 and get connected up with a testing site for an appointment. Or you can simply just drop in at one of the National Guard testing sites. Uh, and lastly, just to, to finish up, please reach out to the uh, educational email. I think Jeff can give you the specifics on that email address uh, and submit questions. We'll try to answer your questions on the podcast. Uh, any questions, welcome. We'll try to get to as many as we can. So, so please shoot those questions through. We want to hear from you uh, and what sort of questions you have, whether it's for OEM in general or medical direction more specifically. Thanks a lot. I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Austin. Yeah, that email for you, emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov, emseducation. Uh, and yeah, uh, any questions you have uh, from around the county, anything you'd like the medical direction team to tackle, answer for you, uh, any questions on education, uh, doesn't necessarily have to be related to the podcast. Uh, we're happy to get those and we'll uh, forward them along and get those answered as best as we can for you. So not a terrible number of updates. Uh, again, from Dr. Wesley, it was great to hear that, you know, numbers are trending in the right direction in regards to COVID. Um, hopefully you can get those testing numbers up and make sure that's a, a true trend as we're going forward and hope that continues as we move into the end of the year here. But onward to today's great topic, uh, motorcycle MVCs. We're getting to that time of year uh, I know Milwaukee County tends to be a fairly urban area, uh, but the wildlife tend to start moving around, getting out, uh, causing havoc. Uh, deer versus motorcycle accidents tend to trend up this time of year going into the winter months. Um, deer versus turkey, if you're around for a TBI lecture last year, uh, those are out. Uh, so we're definitely seeing more animals struck by motorcycles uh, out there and there's a lot of injury patterns and things that can be specific to a motorcycle accident uh, that we may not notice in a uh, traditional vehicle MVC. 
Uh, but to get really into the nitty gritty of it, I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Grover, kind of give us a, a plan on what kind of injuries that we're going to see and then what we can do about them and how can we make the outcomes the best we can for our patients out there. So Dr. Grover, it's all yours. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeff. So happy to talk about this timely topic uh, with everyone out there. Um, we're going to go over a brief review just on motorcycle injuries and the common injury patterns that we should expect. Um, then we're going to talk a little bit about traumatic PNBs and why we do kind of, or why the protocol is the way it is. Um, and then talk about uh, some life-saving interventions, including uh, needle decompression and pericardiosynthesis. Um, so first off with motorcycle injuries and injury patterns, kind of the data we'll be discussing is from a lot of meta-analyses that look at motorcycle accident data and from um, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration that looks at this yearly. So this probably isn't a shocker for medical professionals, but motorcycles are dangerous and actually have up to about a 30 times higher risk of death in an accident than a car. In terms of injury patterns, it's important to know that polytrauma is common. These patients often have multiple injuries, so always remember to do your full head-to-toe assessments and not focus on the single obvious injury. The most common injury site is the lower extremities with fractures commonly to the tibia and then femur. Head injuries are also very common and in decreasing incidence include concussions, brain contusions or hemorrhage, facial fractures, and skull fractures. Facial injuries are also seen in up to 25% of riders and are associated with TBI risk as they indicate a more significant mechanism. Overall, head injuries are the most common cause of death in motorcycle accidents, accounting for just over 50% of deaths among both helmeted and non-helmeted riders. This is followed by chest and abdominal injuries, which account for up to 25% of deaths with include pathology like pneumothorax or lung contusions, and then injuries to your abdominal organs like liver lacerations or splenic lacerations. Um, and any major injury that's found to the trunk also increases the likelihood of a second significant injury elsewhere on the body. I also wanna take a minute and just do a, a mini PSA kind of about helmet use and injury prevention. And frankly, I was surprised at just how much data there is out there and how clear and impressive the benefits of helmets actually are. Um, and this data mainly comes from, it's actually pretty interesting. There's a lot of this data because in this country's history, a lot of states will either strengthen or relax their helmet use laws, and you compare the injuries and deaths before and after. And we don't really have a time to do like a super deep dive into the stats here, but as a whole, these studies consistently show that non-helmeted riders are more likely to die, more likely to have significant head injuries, require longer hospitalizations, and have higher medical costs as compared to helmeted riders. And to clear up a common misconception that's also out there, helmets are not more likely to cause injuries to the spine. And this idea originally came from like older and very small data sets, but there are very many more quality studies out now that have never found this association. And to wrap this section up, the NHTSA, um, they release motorcycle data every year. The most recently was 2017 data that found there were 5,100 motorcycle deaths across the country. Compared to cars, motorcycle fatalities occurred 27 times more frequently, and they estimate helmets saved the lives of over 1,800 motorcycle riders. that almost 750 additional lives could have been saved if everyone was wearing a helmet. So 
to kind of round out motorcycles, again, injuries are often polytrauma. They most frequently involve the lower extremities. The major cause of death is head injuries, and please, please be as safe as you can and wear a helmet while riding. So next I wanna to transition to talking about traumatic cardiac arrest and resuscitation and kind of go over why our protocol um, has the branch points that it does. Um, we'll talk about some of the data and some of the concepts of taking care of these patients and, um, and starting out by talking about a position statement uh, that first came out in 2003. This was a joint position statement between the NAEMSP, which is the National Association of EMS Physicians, and it's a group that myself, Dr. Chin, Dr. Weston, and all the OEM physicians are a part of. Um, so it was that group, and then the American Colleges of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, and this is the big national um, trauma group. So this position statement laid out the clinical data focusing on patient outcomes of traumatic arrests, looking at pre-hospital and emergency department management. Uh, again, first command 2003, revised in 2012 to include some new data. Um, and really overall, it has to be understood that the prognosis of traumatic arrests is just dismal across the board. And we'll go over a handful of examples to illustrate this. But this is why our protocols are focused on things like witnessed versus unwitnessed arrest, blunt versus penetrating mechanism, and initial assessment for signs of life to kind of guide how appropriate a resuscitation is. Based on primary studies and meta-analyses, in general, the chances of survival after a traumatic cardiac arrest are about 2%. And I'll give um, the numbers from uh, just a handful of some of the largest study, larger studies. Um, so we can go back to the 80s, where there was a study done um, on 200, about 250 patients, and seven survived, which is a survival of about 2.5%. Fast forwarding a bit, um, we can go to uh, 1998, where a study was done on almost 900 patients and only found that nine of them survived, which is about 1%. In 2000, or sorry, in uh, 1999 and then 2004, two studies were done, each totaled about 600 patients, and both of those studies found about 2.5% survival. And in 2006, a large study on 1,300 patients found only four survivors which is about 0.3%. And these studies combined are where this kind of approximately 2% survival comes from. So what are really the predictive factors here that are associated with survival or death for these patients? As a general principle, it's the patients who survive are the ones that have an isolated injury to the heart from a penetrating mechanism. This is really because a penetrating injury to the heart that causes a cardiac arrest could be from a pericardial fusion causing cardiac tamponade. And this is an injury that can be fixed relatively quickly as compared to blunt injuries, which are usually caused by shearing forces to larger areas and damage multiple organs or large vessels that you can't really fix quickly. This is the reason our OEM protocol says to emergently transport patients with penetrating thoracic chest injury only. It's the idea that these patients are more likely to have a small injury to an area that can be accessed quickly and fixed at the bedside in the ED before going to the OR with a trauma surgeon for definitive repair. The other half of penetrating injury transport decision is for patients who are within 10 minutes of the trauma center and who have a witnessed arrest by EMS. This idea comes from studies that assess the average duration of CPR in survivors versus non-survivors for traumatic arrests. And while there's no universally accepted time frame for continuing CPR, 
the vast majority of these studies show that patients who survive have a CPR duration of less than 10 minutes. And once you go above 10 minutes of resuscitation, the chances of survival just start to dramatically drop off. Other predictors of survival include any signs of life, whether that's respiratory effort, people reactivity, you know, the normal things that we look for. Um, and for a specific note on heart arrhythmias, ACE being found in asystole is associated with well under 1% chance of survival. And actually most of the studies that look at this show no survivors at all in asystole groups. There are just a handful of kind of outlying studies that do. And that said, fast or normal rate PEA is a relatively good sign and found to be associated with survival, while slow and wide PEA is also associated with poor outcomes and death, just like in non-traumatic cardiac arrests. But now you may be saying to yourself, well, 2% is something, you know, it's better than 0% chance, like some patients make it, so why not just transport all these patients and work on them? The very poor outcomes that we just talked about, they're really only one side of the coin. The other is the risk or the cost-benefit ratio. There is an immense amount of resources dedicated to these patients, significant provider safety issues, and overall huge financial costs, which for better or worse in our healthcare system, it has to be of consideration. These patients frequently require multiple surgeries, lots of blood products, and can be in an ICU for weeks to months. Also, during the initial resuscitation, when they arrive in the emergency department, um, usually thoracotomies are performed, and a thoracotomy is a bedside opening of the chest for direct visualization and access to the heart and other key thoracic structures, and the idea here is just quickly stop bleeding. During these bedside procedures, there's actually a very high rate of provider injuries, including like cuts, lacerations from scalpels, and needle sticks due to the just fast pace, very large incisions, and the tools that are required, which causes further downstream problems and cost. Specifically from an EMS standpoint, as we all know, lights and sirens transport is inherently dangerous. And this is, and is it really worth it for a patient whose outcome is already statistically very poor? Then even after all this work and money and risk is taken, the patients who do survive are frequently neurologically devastated and can often require full-time care afterwards, which is an additional cost burden and also brings up, frankly, ethical questions into quality of life concerns. It's really this combination of poor outcomes and high resource cost, which is why there are stricter resuscitation and transport guidelines in the management of cardiac uh, traumatic arrest patients versus medical arrest patients. So to continue with this morbid topic, um, we're going to shift to talk about some of the interventions that we can do to treat traumatic cardiac arrest patients, starting with needle decompression for tension pneumothorax. When encountering a traumatic arrest patient, in the absence of major head trauma, there are only really two causes of arrest here. It's either from bleeding out from hemorrhagic shock, um, which pre-hospitally you can treat with IV fluid, or from an obstructive process, which in trauma is either from tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade from a pericardial effusion. And these are the two things that your procedures are designed to intervene on. Um, that's why in cardiac arrest patients, you know, bilateral needle decompression is indicated even in the absence of the classical signs of tension pneumothorax, like unequal breath sounds or unequal chest rise, because these are both very insensitive findings. And when the patient is already dead, to put it simply, you can't make them any worse. 
and you might actually relieve a large tension pneumothorax that you didn't know was there and actually get ROSC. So really always perform the bilateral needle decompression in traumatic cardiac arrest patients. Now, once you've made the mental decision to do this, um, where should you do this needle decompression? Where should it be performed? And as most of us were probably taught, needle decompression is classically performed in the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line. So it's up at the top of the chest. However, there's been a shift based on studies looking at correct identification and success rates in the midclavicular line, such that it's now recommended to use the fourth or fifth intercostal space in the mid or anterior axillary line. So that's quite high up in the armpit. And this is a recommendation that is also supported in the 10th edition of ATLS. The efficacy of this axillary approach is logically illustrated by studies looking at CAT scans of patients' chests, and they just measure the, the depth of the subcutaneous tissue to measure the thickness there in these different locations. And the studies vary a bit, but generally there's about one centimeter less of this subcutaneous tissue up towards the armpit than at the top of the chest, and this is a difference that's more pronounced in women. Failure rates at the midclavicular line approach have also been found to be as high as 50% in some studies due to misidentified landmarks or chest wall thickness. Like sometimes your needle just isn't long enough to actually hit the pleural space. So next time you get called for a traumatic PNB, do bilateral needle decompression and do it high up in the armpit in the fourth or fifth anterior axillary line. The final intervention to consider in traumatic cardiac arrest patients is a pericardiocentesis. This is a much more uncommon pre-hospital procedure, frankly, and there really isn't good data to guide this, but there are certain scenarios where pericardiocentesis should be done, and I think there's a lot of hesitation to perform this procedure, so I wanted to briefly clarify when I think it should be performed. It's really when you're working on a traumatic arrest patient with obvious central chest trauma, whether that's left chest or sternal entry wounds, sternal bruising or things like sternal deformity, crepitus, you're looking for some indication that there's trauma to the area anatomically where the heart is located. And the first step I would say is to do your bilateral needle decompression. And then if you don't have ROSC, then it's time to go for the pericardiocentesis. And for a final point, as discussed earlier, again, survival is closely correlated with shorter durations of resuscitations. Needle decompression and pericardiocentesis need to be done ASAP in traumatic arrest patients. Don't wait for the first or second rhythm check to consider these procedures. This is where one person starting CPR while the other person is getting the needle out and decompressing. Please know that as medical control, we know most of the time these will be done on patients who don't actually have a tension pneumothorax or pericardial effusion, but we will always back you up and support your use of these skills in the field because you will save someone's life with them. Now all this, it's a really big topic and I know there are lots of caveats here and I'm sure a lot of questions out there. So please, as Jeff was talking about before, email us and in the future we can go through specific questions or specific or specific scenarios that you guys have run into in the field. Um, thanks a lot for your time and be safe out there. Thanks a lot, Dr. Grover. Yeah, that is a lot of information to consider uh, in a hurry here. So I'll encourage any follow-up questions. Yeah, send them our way. Uh, we'll take a look at them, try and get those answered up for you. I uh, just want to reemphasize that, you know, in those uh, lateral needle decompressions to stay high in that armpit, um, you start drifting a little bit too low down that rib cage and you start hitting things like liver and uh, getting into areas that 
aren't going to be as effective for relief on those skills. So, so we've definitely seen some of the injury patterns, uh, some of the issues that arise uh, in MVCs in general, uh, a lot of the issues that we see in motorcycle accidents. Uh, over the past uh, year or so, uh, the medical direction team has really been working hard on some uh, different tools that we can put into our toolbox when communicating with uh, EMSCOM and with the uh, with medical control when we have uh, a desire to terminate resuscitation efforts or we're giving our uh, handoff reports and our radio reports into the hospital. Uh, so I'm gonna grab Dr. Chin, uh, kind of run through some of these new forms and new mnemonics and all that good information for us. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, very much for the uh, for the bridge there. So uh, a lot of this, thanks, goes to Dr. Engel, did a, a lot of great work doing the uh, medical trauma rest consult uh, tool, which is uh, one of the forms that uh, Jeff is referring to, and then the DMIST reporting tool for trauma that he's uh, also discussed there. So we'll just take a brief minute or so and kind of discuss those two forms, kind of the usage, uh, uh, the, the purpose behind them, and how we hope they're going to benefit our system moving forward. So with the medical trauma rest consult, just note that you can find that uh, in the tools portion of your app or the uh, online uh, website with the guidelines listed there. Uh, and it, it basically goes through an SBAR format. So for people not familiar with that, it's commonly used in nursing handoffs, um, but it basically addresses the situation, the background, the assessment, and the recommendations. So you see those kind of bolded on the left side of the form if you're looking at it uh, at home. Uh, and so it starts with the initial introduction. So, you know, what med unit you are, what the age and sex of the patient are, and then what exactly type of um, arrest consult you're looking to perform. So whether that's a trauma or a medical cardiac arrest. And again, this is for the MTAC form. Um, and then it goes into, again, that SBAR format. So the situation. So you're going to address things that have occurred um, for that situation. So you're going to talk about, you know, whether this was a witnessed arrest, whether there was bystander CPR, um, what the last known well time, what the initial like cardiac rhythm was, what your current cardiac rhythm was, any of those types of things will be addressed in that initial portion or the situation part. You'll move on to the background portion. The background really is exactly what it says. You're going to talk about, this is what I did. So this is what airway intervention I have. This is what my entitled CO2 looks like. These are my access uh, that I have. I have an IO or I have an IV, whatever type of access, whatever. And then whatever interventions or medications you give. So how much fluids, how much, how many rounds of epi did you give? Uh, how many antiarrhythmic doses and what type of antiarrhythmic did you give? I shocked how many times? So all that portion goes into the background portion. Uh, and then the assessment. So this is details about the situation, any past medical history. So this is your, you know, the patient has a history of uh, kidney disease, which would be an, an important thing to note for the online med control physician and yourselves is in terms of what interventions you might offer moving forward. What other details about the situation maybe you haven't addressed in those previous two sections that you think would be important for someone who's consulting on this call to know about and then obviously how long you've been working this cardiac arrest, another important um, uh, nugget of information that's going to be helpful in determining how we're going to manage this call moving forward. And then finally, you know, what are your requests and your recommendations? So what are you considering? Are you, are you looking for kind of guidance with termination? Are you considering a transport in this patient for reasons that you may have described in the above, um, you know, information you relate on the medical control? Um, so what are, you know, what are the guidance steps that you're looking for next? And there's a couple reasons why we put in that format. One, it's a kind of a standardly accepted format across the healthcare field in terms of how you organize information to be presented. 
Two, it really goes in line with the uh, forms. And you guys may not be familiar, but on the back end, the physicians are really doing some uh, significant uh, work in terms of documentation and um, assessment of the patient information you're giving them. So this really plays into how that information is laid out to them on the form they're using on the back end to help try to guide this resuscitation. So the idea is that one, we're gonna make sure we capture all the really important information that's required for someone to make a decision or to help you guide your decision in terms of resuscitation of a patient. Two, we hope that it's much more efficient for you guys um, to, uh, to kind of get through all the information as well so that you do it in an organized fashion. We're not jumping around quite as much and we feel like that's gonna provide some benefit as you get more accustomed to this format to be able to get that information um, out to everyone. And, and kind of three, we want to make sure that, you're, that, uh, that we're doing this as efficiently as possible. Um, so the idea would be that, you know, we're, as we get more uh, familiar with this form, we'll be able to get this information acquired relatively quickly and relay that in a more efficient manner than our current verbal presentations would be uh, online. So that's kind of the reason behind this tool. Again, we have it set uh, specifically for both medical and trauma patients. So there's a huge uh, you know, there's not a huge difference. The really the the information, a lot of it's uh, the same, but there's obviously some specific interventions that are going to differ based upon, um, you know, which type of uh, arrest consult you're using. So again, we're encouraging the use of this uh, one to kind of streamline the verbal reports that you guys are giving, and to help the the online medical control physician as well be able to synthesize the information you're giving them. So there's a couple benefits um, to using this form, and we hope that it's beneficial to you all that have that have used it uh, in the past. And again, we're always welcome to suggestions as well. So if you have thoughts that would make this tool easier to use or visually more easy to kind of pick up on, just let us know and we'd be happy to kind of think about how we can improve that as well. The other uh, kind of thing, again, another uh, thanks to Dr. Engel as well for kind of working with Dr. Weston to put this together is the DMIST verbal trauma handoff. And um, this is something that's been going on a little while. And again, the ideas are very similar to the MTAC tool, which is really to try to streamline the information, ensure that we're gathering the correct information uh, and the important information to relay to the next healthcare provider who's going to take care of this patient. Um, so DMS really, again, stands for the demographics, the mechanism, the injuries, the severity and signs and the treatments. And this is obviously for our trauma patients going to a trauma center. So for the most part, this is going to be at the, at the main campus at Freighted, or if this is a children's patient going to children's. Um, but we encourage you to use this, um, this tool whenever you're giving any sort of verbal report. So whether that's TMS communications, and we've asked our friends over at the at EMSCOM to kind of prompt, um, prompt the providers to utilize this when they're giving their, their radio reports um, so we can send out the information appropriately and, and they can get used to giving this verbal um, report. And then obviously when you get to the trauma center, we're really trying to encourage the use when you're doing the verbal handoff at bedside to the emergency medicine and trauma surgery providers uh, who are at the hospital. Um, so we've done a couple things to try to encourage, again, the uptake of this. So not only is this podcast one way for me to, to get in your ear and nag you a little bit about taking a peek at this and trying to utilize it moving forward, uh, but we've also asked our EMS communications people, like I said, to really prompt people to use this format when reporting traumas out to them. Uh, and then we've made some visual reminders at the main campus. So if you go to Freighter uh, Hospital these days in the ambulance bay and throughout the hallways to our trauma bay, you're going to see a sign that says, 
um, do a DMIST and it's going to give you some uh, verbal cues and reminders about what uh, is in a DMIST handoff. Our trauma surgery colleagues and all of our emergency medicine colleagues have been educated on this uh, DMIST uh, handoff so that they can be aware of it as well. And we're prompting our nursing staff to really encourage uh, the use of this DMIST when you guys are given reports. Again, feel free to use this outside of your critically ill trauma patients. If you want to give a bedside report on a, on a trauma patient to, to somewhere else, I think this is a great reporting format to do it and to help you get more comfortable with utilizing this. But certainly on all of our critically ill trauma patients, we're, we're kind of now expecting at the main campus to, for you guys to try to utilize this verbal handoff. And again, it's, it's the same reasons I talked about, really building efficiency. And there's some um, data that Dr. Engel pulled, uh, pulled up before that showed that you can give the same amount of information that we used to give in a much more compact um, uh, package to our uh, healthcare providers in a much shorter time. Uh, and then we don't, then that we don't miss any critical information for, you know, injuries or uh, treatments that have been provided in the field that it gives you really, again, a, a regimented way to talk through a verbal presentation. So uh, again, I won't uh, belabor this too much uh, anymore, but again, just another push to please take a look at those tools that are available to you. Um, give them a quick once over in your app or on the, on the website, and please use them uh, when you're contacting, uh, when you're contacting on med, med control for the MTAC or when you're giving a verbal handoff for a, for a trauma patient over at Freighter Hospital. Uh, I know we'd appreciate it, uh, and, I, and we think that it's going to improve uh, the, the um, transition of care between the two services here. Um, so with that, I'll, uh, I'll hand it back to Jeff there, and uh, I appreciate everyone's time. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Chin. Uh, it's, I know change can be hard, and there's been a lot of people out there that have been given reports the same way for a long time. Uh, but there's definitely some good rationale behind, you know, these updates to both the DMIST and the MTAC reports. It'll speed up communication. It'll get the salient points across quickly and clearly, uh, help those, especially the online med control docs, uh, make decisions and reduce some of the miscommunication that can happen out there and hopefully speed up decisions and uh, decision making. So uh, with that, I'll thank everybody for attending today. Uh, just some friendly reminders. If you have questions from today's topic, any previous uh, podcasts, anything you've seen up there in the county, anything you'd like to see on future podcasts, please feel free to email those EMS education at milwaukeecountywi.gov and we will definitely take care of those questions for you. Also a friendly reminder for those that listen nice and early to these podcasts, coming up here in September, we do have a number of events uh, and educational opportunities focused around mental health and psychology. So those are up in your target solutions for your perusal and sign up. I would encourage you to sign up uh, just so we can get an appropriate headcount uh, for our guest speakers that are coming in. And with that, I'll thank again everybody uh, for listening today and listening to our recorded podcast. Uh, for any of those motorcycle riders out there, please, please, please wear a helmet, stay safe. And uh, that stay safe goes for all of our providers out there. So thanks everybody. And we'll see you next month.